Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Kenneth Kukier will join us to discuss framers. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, what is it that makes humans better than machines? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Kenneth Kukier. Mr. Kukier is senior editor at The Economist and host of its weekly podcast on technology, Babbage. He's an associate fellow at the Said Business School at the University of Oxford, and together with co-authors Victor May Schoenberg and Francis de Veracour, has penned the new book, Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil. Mr. Kukier, thanks so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, it's certainly a timely book. Would you talk about what is it that gives humans the advantage in the age of technology and turmoil? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So one of my co-authors, Victor Mayer Schoenberger, and I have wrote a book called Big Data several years ago, and it did really well. It sort of was maybe the, the crack of the firing starting pistol of the big data revolution. This is around what, 2013 or so. And it got misunderstood because although we embraced big data and we thought it was going to be so transformative, it seemed like we were sort of advocating for data completely blindly outside of how it could actually be interpreted and used. And that was far from the case. We understand that if you are going to use data and, and, and artificial intelligence, you need to put it into a model. And typically that is a statistical model. But before you have a statistical model, you have something else. You have a mental model. You have a mental model of the world. So when we looked at what was going on in 2016 and 17 and 18 of populists all around the world sort of creeping up and creeping authoritarianism in certain countries, as well as the fact we've got, you know, businesses getting bigger and bigger in the world and populists everywhere and cancel culture and the culture wars, we realized this is going to be a big problem. We've got artificial intelligence on one side. We've got populism on the other. The collision of this is going to be amazingly dramatic. But the thing that people need to know is that the data alone and artificial intelligence isn't going to run the show. People have to be at the center. We are at the center, but we can't give that up. And so we've written a book about mental models, about how we frame the world. Because if you frame the world well, you increase your alternatives, you make better decisions, and you get better outcomes. And in an era where we have existential threats, what we really need is to frame really well so we can get good outcomes. Is this something that computers are just fundamentally unable to do? I mean, certainly people are trying to create devices that are able to at least extract some sort of generalization about the external world, but it might not necessarily be something that the architecture of computers can do. Well, that's exactly right. You put your finger exactly on it, which is that the computers are trying to do that and people are trying to do that, but it is something that computers can't fundamentally do. And the reason why is there's three features of a mental model and there happens to be the three things that computers can't do. The first is causality a sense of the cause and effect relationships that are sort of implicit in all that we experience and do, computers actually need to have causality built into it. It can't suss that out on its own. 
Secondly is counterfactuals, these what ifs, you know, the sort of the hypotheticals. Computers simply cannot do that. If, if they do that, they do that because a human being has instructed it to do that and encoded counterfactuals in, but it doesn't do that on its own and it can't. And thirdly, and most importantly, are the constraints. We as human beings know how to impose just the right limits well, actually, we often get it wrong, but when we get it right, it turns out to be extraordinarily well. But we know how to impose limits on what we do, boundaries and restraints and constraints, but computers can't do that. And again, if they do that, sure, a computer can give you 110 trillion constraints in a quarter of a second, but it's not going to find the right one at the right time that's meaningful in, the, in a given circumstance. For those reasons, humans and mental models are at the core of society and the world and of artificial intelligence, not the algorithm on its own. Uh, we're living in society. Everybody has a different mental models, which in some way compete, but one wins out if it, if it winds up being the best model. Well, that's right. And hopefully, if it's a good model, it will win out. Sometimes it doesn't. Or if it's imposed by force, then you've got a problem. So a classic example is the geocentric theory of the universe and the heliocentric theory. The geocentric is that the Earth is the center of the solar system, whereas the heliocentric, actually the universe at the time, and the heliocentric is that the sun is at the center. And you can do planetary motion, right, and, and, trot, and plot out where Venus is going to be and Jupiter is going to be if you put the Earth at the center. The problem is that it's really, really complicated, and it's not actually real. So you can get the mathematics, but it doesn't actually correspond to reality. And the church doctrine at the time of Galileo was to put the earth at the center for religious orthodox purposes of Christian orthodoxy, the dogma. Whereas Galileo said, no, 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 the, the sun is at the center and the earth is just one of the, of the planets that are revolving around it. So hopefully the right frame will win out because when it does, you can do a lot more with it. It becomes much more useful. It simplifies the world and you can actually then do all the things you'd like to do living in the world with an accurate mental model until you need to change the model again. The point you bring up is that humans are able to reframe. That's right. So at, at certain points, off, often you're better off just staying within a frame and sort of tailoring and adjusting the frame. But if, if the frame isn't working for you, you absolutely do need to reframe and imagine a new reality and how you could actually proceed with it. So a, a basic example of that in business that we're all familiar with is about a decade ago, Nokia was the number one, a little bit longer, it's about 2007, Nokia was the, was the top mobile phone handset maker in the world. And Apple comes in with the iPhone and just crushes Nokia and everyone else. And the reason why was because of framing. Nokia had the frame of the telecom industry, which was very control-oriented, and tried to make the cheapest, cheapest phone possible with the most you know, basic functionality. Apple, on the other hand, was trying to actually have a computing mental model in their mindset. And by opposing the computing frame on the situation, they actually had a very expensive device that was owned by the individual who could extend its features through software. Well, we know what won, right? Reframing the device was necessary to make a product that everyone loved. And if you stayed in the frame of the telecom industry, you'd have something that looked a little bit like the black rotary phone of yore, but which just didn't have a cord being able to consider a wide variety of frames and choose among them. That is exactly right. So the way to actually become a good framer is, there's several ways, but the most important is to develop a repertoire of frames. And that means to be exposed to other frames and other mental models and ways of thinking about that. And how do you get exposed to others' frames, but to actually 
relish the principle of diversity. Now, it's diversity in all of its manifestations. It's not simply the box-ticking sense of diversity that, like, hey, I'm black, you're white, you're white, I'm black. What we're talking about, or, or man and female, it's really about a way of seeing the world. It's about thinking of it in a new way and about having this sort of cognitive diversity, this mental diversity. It's so essential that we actually have a sense of tolerance and, most importantly, pluralism, that we can not just have allow the differences to exist, but to relish the idea that the differences can clash, that we can actually tussle over it, that if we're operating with good faith, we should actually enjoy the fact that there's going to be a conflict of ways of thinking about the world, and that together we're going to find the right answer to the right problem, the right frame that fits. What makes me nervous is that this idea of open ideas and open inquiry and the clash of ideas is the very thing that's actually being pushed under in the current political climate, not just in the United States, but elsewhere around the world. And it's, it's very toxic because the only way we're going to solve our problems is if we all have an ability to give voice to our ideas and to let it intermingle and to come up with new ideas based on our conversations. The openness to other ideas outside is not really there. Well, the point is that we need to state very explicitly that the goal is going to be the idea of what we call in the book cognitive foraging, that we, we go hither and thither in search of new ideas and appreciating how other people think, even if we don't agree with it. Some people on Twitter put down in their, in their bio, say, retweets does not equal endorsements. And that's exactly right. Just because someone is on my campus is that is talking about something that I don't agree with doesn't mean that I should shout them down. In fact, it shows a lack of self-confidence in one's position that voicing these very ideas seems to be wrong. Now, I accept the fact that there are ideas that are heinous, that people find to be so intolerable that they, are, that they shouldn't be given voice. But the, the history of politics and humankind is that when you try to bottle this up, rather than allow it to be free but ignored, you're worse off when you try to bottle it up. So we put out a doctrine in our book that the only frame that is impermissible is the one that disallows other frames, that restricts other frames. As long as, pe as, long as that frame that wants to be voiced doesn't interfere with my freedom to frame, that should be permissible. As much as I might dislike it, I shouldn't actually try to restrict it. It's restricting people's cognitive freedom, which actually restricts their soulful expression of self vis-a-vis -vis reality and the world. That should, no one should ever have that restriction placed on them. If all they're trying to do is express how they see the world, only should they be restricted if they're trying to restrict others. So much of, I mean, one's identity, one's sense of self is based around one's mental model of the world. And oftentimes other models of the world can be viewed as assailing one's personal identity. I think we're in a strange situation in history right now in which our mental attitude is so based around our identity. And like, you know, this idea of, you know, what do you think of the French Revolution? Too early to tell, even though it's 200 years ago. I think it's, it's, it's the situation is not ripe for me to have a strong view on what the problem is and what the solution is to this phenomenon of restricting people's speech and mental activity based on a sense of identity. I, I, I'm still in a learning phase on that, I'll put it that way. I do think, however, that there's easy test cases. And the easy test case would be in a business setting. 
if you're going to have a team work on a project, you want to have as diverse a team as possible with different people there to actually think about the problem. And the reason why is the social science is completely clear that when you have diversity in teams, in business, you get better outcomes, as long as they have the freedom to think on their own before they interact as a team. Because if not, they're just going to follow what the boss says, right? We're all monkeys in the Serengeti that way. However, if we have that freedom and people can express their diverse thinking and original thinking, then they're going to actually perform really well. And for companies, it's essential. So that's why you're seeing so much activities in terms of diversity. And we, we talk about the case study method as a way at, that business schools try to bring out the diverse thinking of people. But we also have something what we call the corporate Cassandra, the person who sees the vision but is restricted from speaking it because others don't want to hear it in the organization and we say, no, 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 you need to protect these corporate Cassandras. We need to protect these people who are the corporate court jesters who are willing to speak truth to power because these are the people who can help us in a corporate setting. And now you step back and you say, well, what about in politics? What about policy? And you say, exactly as well. We need to allow people to express themselves freely so that we can get good ideas and solve our most existential problems. Maybe to close, I mean, what would you like people then to take home regarding human use of frames and how it can be applied practically? Control and agency. What's essential is for people to realize that a basic aspect of living and functioning in the world is, is about sizing up the world through a mental model. And that if we think deliberately about the mental model or frame that we have, we can actually stay within it, adjust it for our purposes, or reframe and have a new mental model. By doing so, we increase the range of alternatives that we can choose from. We can therefore make better choices and get better decisions, both for ourselves as individuals, for our companies, for our communities, and our countries. We were just talking with Mr. Kenneth Kukier, together with co-authors Victor Meyer Schoenberger and Francis de Vericourt, has penned the new book, Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil. Mr. Kukier, thank you very much for joining us today on the Garak Science Show. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.